0: It's a beautiful spring Friday in central Missouri. And walking down to the bank is a mother with her three beautiful children in tow. The mother has had serious bouts of depression. And she takes her children and she sits them on the bank. And while they're happily sitting on the bank, the depressed mother pulls out a handgun and systematically shoots each one of these children and then she takes the gun and puts it to her head and kills herself detectives are called on saturday morning and they respond to that riverbank where they have a tragic and grisly crime scene to follow, and to investigate city streets and the Quiet Town Boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be
1: open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron
0: Martinelli will lead this investigation. With me today is former homicide detective, Darren Dake of Death Investigations Academy outside of St. Louis, Missouri. Darren, let's take us through this crime scene so that our listeners can understand what forensic death investigations is all about.
2: Well, Ron, thank you for asking about this. This is a very big case, and and the, the tragedy of this was on that Saturday morning, actually arriving on the scene and seeing three dead children and then the mom. Uh, we knew we had somebody that had died and and they said it was multiple, but we didn't know, uh, of course, how many. Uh, when we get there to see three children dead on a riverbank, of course was tragic. and even uh, being a death investigator for so long homicide investigator, it was still it was still pretty tugging.
0: Well, I'll tell you. Having been to many, many homicide scenes as an investigator myself, I certainly understand uh, the horrific nature of these scenes and we have to put those things aside as responders and compartmentalize that for later on, but cue in on exactly uh, how to solve these types of crimes. And uh, there are are obvious protocols that we need to go through. We need to obviously establish the crime scene. We need to uh, isolate that crime scene, uh, start the investigation process, look, identify, uh, recover, and analyze evidence, and uh, do a variety of things uh, to try to determine, first of all, uh, cause and manner of death. Well, manner of death is going to be gunshot wound. But Suicide, homicide, combination of suicide, homicide, those are all important things that we have to deal with as death investigators. Let's talk about what some of those protocols are.
2: Yeah, Ron. So, in this particular case, what made it more difficult was that we had, of course, four bodies at that point. And so, not only were we having to process the scene as you would with one body, we had to do that four times. Because what you have to keep in mind is, although this is a scene as in of itself, each body is a different crime. So there was three homicides and then a suicide. Now, at the time, we didn't know that wasn't four homicides. We didn't know at the time. We just had dead people. So we have to start, like you said, cordon off the area, secure the scene, get people back. Now, we're on a riverbank. We got a storm coming in. All that was fighting. and And really, we had to start from where the car was parked and start processing this area You know, for anything at this point, it could be a homicide. So, do we have a cigarette butt? Do we have even the finest hair of somebody? You know, could be on the ground. I mean, all of that has to be processed, and that's a huge task. And then when you get to the bodies themselves, of course, each body has to be processed in and of itself because uh, they were. These were all girls. So, was the children sexually assaulted before they were murdered? How you know? Why were they there? So you can imagine on the scene it was. It was hours and hours and hours of dealing with this uh, on the scene level, uh, looking for the most minute piece and also protecting any DNA evidence that might be on the victims that could lead to a suspect. <laughs> now, Ultimately, we did determine through investigation that it was a suicide. Uh, mom killed the kids and then killed herself. But again, when you first get the call, there's no way to know what you have. You've just got a huge case and you're going to be there for all day dealing with it.
0: And you know, there's so many challenges to these crime scenes, uh, depending on the circumstances. Because every single scene that we go to is unique in its circumstances, and some of the things that we have to fight, some of the challenges we have, are at first responders get there. And I'm I'm not talking about the police component, but I'm talking about EMS. I'm talking about the fire department. I'm talking about uh, swift water rescue, just in case because we're at a river. Uh, it's springtime. Usually, those rivers, uh, you know, it's. Still still raining. Those rivers are rapidly rising. Uh, They could destroy evidence. And uh, people walking through the crime scene can certainly uh, contribute to the challenges of evidence being uh, adulterated or, or destroyed. So those are all, you know, and you mentioned the weather. The weather Sort of time compresses everything, right? And now we have to, uh, you know, maybe bring shields or or tents or things like that to try to protect our crime scene. And we're looking for, in many cases, the most minute trace evidence that we can possibly find.
2: Right, and that's what we had to do, actually. When we knew a storm was coming in, we put up temporary tents over the bodies so that we could protect the rain from actually hitting the bodies. That didn't do much for us on the ground uh, around that, but but we did protect the bodies. Uh, and when the storm passed, and we continued uh, to process from there. And, and keep in mind, in, in this particular case, uh, these individuals wasn't from our county. They were from quite a ways away, which meant we, did, we didn't know who they were. One of the first tasks after we got the bodies out of the scene was just determine who these people are because you can't even start down the road to a conclusion or a suspect until you know who they are. Right. And identify them.
0: Well, and that's very important. And, you know, for those people that uh, maybe see crime scenes on television that are real crime scenes, and they'll see that, you know, bodies are, are, are left out in the open. Of course, we try to cover them for privacy and things like that. But those bodies are out in the open sometimes for lengthy period of time and people kind of look at the crime scene investigators and say, Hey, what's wrong with those people? I mean, can't you understand that someone's died? Well, what they need to understand is that those people are dead. And if there are no witnesses who speaks for them. And so who are the people that have to process the crime scene where we have a giant puzzle with some piece, pieces missing with some pieces fitting in the wrong way, uh, and, and how how do we do that? Well, sometimes we have to have a lengthy crime scene investigation, and sometimes the bodies uh, we still have to keep them there so that we don't destroy trace evidence. And then we do try to get those bodies out of there just as quickly as we possibly can, because we have feelings and emotions ourselves. But it is so much more important as far as priorities are concerned, so we can help those dead victims uh, to be able to get as much trace evidence as we possibly can from each of those crime scenes.
2: Right. And that's where it's important to use barricades things like that that doesn't touch the body, but barricades and things that will block people from seeing the body. Um, But a case that we all know about is the Ferguson, Missouri, which is right up the road from me, the Michael Brown case. One of the things that caused the problem in the beginning was they left Michael on the ground for so long. There's no barricades. And of course, all of his friends and family was around there and seen him laying on there in the middle of the road for so long. It was necessary, but it could have been alleviated by, by, by maybe moving him faster, but also by putting some barricades up and protecting Michael Brown's dignity of laying in the middle of the road. That caused a lot of hate in the community. And then, of course, it spawned from there. But the original thing was, was just that. Um, uh, he, wasn't, he wasn't shielded. And I, and I think you can't really touch the bodies. But yes, I think shield. And in this case, it takes hours. So we need to shield it from public view.
0: Right. And, you know, just as an aside, and I wrote about this in my very popular book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police. I uh, did a forensic analysis in the Michael Brown case and followed the United States Department of Justice investigation. I wasn't a member of the United States uh, Department of Justice at that time as an expert, as I am now. But uh, that did uh, anger the community. And that has a lot to do with training and resources. And, you know, we're going to talk about that type of thing in our third segment of uh, of our program today. You know, there's so many things at crime scenes uh, that we have to look at as crime scene and death investigators. And, of course, we've been talking about trace evidence, uh, but we also need to talk about how we classify these crimes. Uh, these death scenes. uh, With respect to homicide, we need to find out if it's an organized or disorganized crime scene. And we also need to look at uh, the issues of what's referred to as proprietary interest. Now, that's a good term for our listeners to understand because you rarely hear that on the CSI movie shows. Proprietary interest is generally defined by three elements. Number one, something that someone brings to the crime scene. Something that someone takes from the crime scene. And finally, the way the crime scene's manipulated. So, Darren, why don't we talk a little bit about disorganized versus organized crime scenes and proprietary interest a little bit?
2: Well, and in this particular case, you know, it uh, well, first off, they're disorganized and, and organized, and then you've got this combination of both depending on the scene. And so, correct. You- confusing. And and I know that the, the lay people out there that watch a CSI on TV and things like that, it seems like it's spelled out for them. And, but in, in reality, it's not spelled out so much. But in this particular case, uh, it was pretty organized because there, there, uh, there was a vehicle, there was four bodies, and there was a gun. And really, that's all there really was about this, except we didn't know who they were. Uh, but as we got into this, we found out it was very organized because there was a plan that was made. She executed the plan flawlessly. And, you know, it was, it was, it, and she even chose the area, which was about an hour and a half from her home. So she even knew where she was going. She didn't go there by chance. Uh, and in this case, you know, what, what, the, what she brought to the, the crime was the weapon, which she just bought a few days prior.
0: Right. And so those are very important issues of proprietary interest. And it shows planning, it shows methodology. And uh, of course, it's an extremely bizarre type of homicide. Case because uh, it's a it's a more of a matricide fratricide uh, killing where you're killing your own children and motive has a lot to do with that and it fits into what we refer to as the psychological profile of the person that commits the homicide and or suicide.
2: Right, and Ron, most of the time when a mother kills a children. Most of the time, it is to protect the children. Now, that's not always the case. Sometimes mothers kill children for selfish reasons, but a lot of times it's to protect the children. Uh, you know, the, the, the one that we've heard about that killed all five children so they didn't uh, end up getting older and going to hell. Uh, the, the, the mothers that kill their children uh, to protect them in some way. And then, of course, in this particular case, it was the same way. Uh, she was suicidal, had been suicidal, uh, tried to get the help the day before. Uh, The the hospital turned her down for admittance um, and she decided that she was going to go ahead and kill herself, but she loved her children so much. And by all accounts, she was a fabulous mother, a fabulous mother, and she could not see her children being raised without her. So because she needed to die, she felt it was in the best interest of her children to kill them so that then she could die and they wouldn't be raised without a mother. That happens a lot in these cases.
0: And you know, eighty uh, percent of my caseload. Uh, I mean, right now I've got forty-five homicides I'm actively working right now as a as a forensic expert. Most of them are police involved, but I will tell you that eighty percent of my caseload deals with mental health issues and you know rhetorical question for our audience that follows uh, a thread of evidence is that how many times have we talked about mental health issues during this program you know we just finished talking about the Parkland uh, Florida, uh, mass active shooter killing at the high school, mental health problems there. Uh, we had the mass uh, shooter uh, over here, in Texas, uh, not too far from my offices outside of San Antonio, Texas. Mental health is a huge problem. And, you know, I'm sure that there are many mothers uh, listening to this program today and grandparents. And you're saying, my God, how could someone do something like that? Well, when you're stuck in that mental health darkness of depression uh, your mind does strange things to you and your processing is just far from normal it's quite abnormal now you know Darren one of the things that that you and I have to do in something like this uh, following something that we've determined uh, to be a uh, in part a homicide uh, suicide is we have to do what's referred to as a psychological autopsy on uh, on the killer uh, can we talk about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, and that was done, of course. And once we determined, or once we felt that we had a, a, a suicide murder, uh, because we still didn't know if it was a full, hom- uh, just a four homicides. You know, we found the, the 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 husband, and and his alibi checked out, and and but then he told us his wife had mental illness, and he'd already reported her missing, and and so as we go through and get a background on the mother. That's where the psychological autopsy comes in. That's where you want to know as much about her as far back as you can go. I mean, if you can go back to when she was a childhood and work forward, I mean, that's even good. But, you know, had she had suffered mental illness? Did she recently have a job loss? Does she have a medical condition or something? What, who is she? That's how, that's how we know she was a good mother. That's how we know she was a very, very good mother. She loved her children and was a great mother. And you say, well, how can a great mother, if she's so good, why'd she kill her kids? Again, she was such a good mother, she didn't want anybody else to be bad to her children. Now, that doesn't make sense to us, right? But like you said, but the psychological autopsy showed that, that she'd suffered this mental illness for a long time, and she'd made comments like um, she's, she's never going to kill herself, even though she wants to, because of her children. Uh, that's the only thing that kept her going. Uh, she finally got to the point that she couldn't. In fact, uh, the, the, she killed her children on a Friday. Uh, We got notified on a Saturday. She tried to check herself in on a Thursday uh, to a mental health hospital and was told them that her medication wasn't working. She felt like she wanted to kill her children and herself. Um, She needed to check herself in. Uh, The doctor was on call, called him on the telephone, and the doctor says, well, um, why don't you just go ahead and double your medication and come in and see me on Monday? Of course, that was Thursday. Uh, Friday, she took her kids out and killed them.
0: Well, you know, I'm not an MD, so I don't diagnose, but I am a PhD and in, in a certified medical phys- uh, investigator at the physician's level. Just to mention a little bit about psychotropic medication. And by the way, uh, there is one out of five people in the United States that is on some type of medication. And so psychotropic medications are mood altering drugs. So what we use them for is to mitigate. The, the negative effects of mental illness. Now, if it's a psychosis, such as depression, mania, uh, bipolar disorder, which is a combination of mania and depression, or uh, schizophrenia, uh, those are lifelong conditions. So nobody's ever gonna get cured from those conditions, but it doesn't mean that they can't have a relatively normal life. And so what a psychiatrist will do, uh, under uh, consultation, with uh, either an MD, and of course, all psychiatrists are MDs, they're also PSYDs, will develop a medication regimen for that person where they'll have to take uh, one medication or a couple of different medications. But as often happens with these medications, because there's a lot of experimenting that is done, because everybody takes medication differently, and those medications, especially psychotropics, uh affect everybody differently is sometimes those medications can exacerbate or worsen uh, the effects of suicidal ideations and some other things like that. And that's what an MD really has to consider. If somebody calls you up and they say, hey, looking, I'm taking psychotropic medications and it's worse or it's doing this or that, you really need to bring that person in for an assessment because if you tell them to double up on their medications, you might make things twice as bad as they are when the person comes to report those things to you.
2: Right. And that's, I guess what happened in this case, and no, she didn't double up her meds, of course, but that's, that's what the doctor told her. And we know that because the reception nurse um, te- uh, testified, well, told our investigator that that was what was wrote in her notes from the doctor. And, and that was another whole issue that's still going on. Uh, but yeah, it was, it was a bad thing. And she did seek, seek help. Uh, and she'd been seeking help. Uh, but she had a plan. She followed her plan. She'd bought a gun um, a few weeks ago. Wasn't, wasn't like she bought the gun today and did it tomorrow. She bought a gun several weeks ago. Um, yes, she was under psychological care, but she was not um, a threat to anybody else. And, you know, just because you're seeing a psychiatrist for a suicidal thoughts, you know, they can't flag you in those cases. They, the FBI doesn't know that. So when you get a background check, it doesn't show. And, and, but there's a lot of people suffer depression. Ron, like you said, there's so many people that suffer depression and take medication, that's fine. They would never hurt anybody, right? You just don't know.
0: No, that, that's exactly right. And when we do the psychological autopsy, uh, like you said, you know, Darren, uh, we go back as far as we can. But a lot of times what we do is we start out with the first 24 hours and then work backwards to 48 hours and 72 hours and maybe a week and maybe a couple of weeks. And what we're looking for, and here's another term to, to write down, is we're looking for something referred to as flicker moments. Okay, So what, what is a flicker moment? A flicker moment is is the person uh, acting abnormally, acutely abnormally. And maybe it's one where the police are called out to the house and uh, and this person has kind of gone off their rocker a little bit and the police maybe have to come out, do an assessment and evaluation, and uh, they have to involuntarily commit them to a local psychiatric facility uh, for 72 hours. And, and that particular portion of time is critical in the assessment of these individuals. Hey, look, when we come back from our break, I'd like to talk with you about another death case that you worked that I thought was extremely interesting. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and Derek Dake, death investigator on America Out Loud.
3: Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health. Sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older. Until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell.
4: The Out Loud Perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an Out Loud life on AmericaOutloud.com. Glitcher News and Entertainment Network, where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a sunny and
0: hot summer day in central Missouri and a mother in her late 40s is in the house in the morning with her stepsons that are sleeping in late. Each stepson is in a separate bedroom. During that morning, the mother walks into each bedroom with a pistol and fires one round into the chest. Of each of her sleeping stepsons, and then walks outside the house. One of the stepsons survives, the other son is killed instantly. The severely wounded stepson walks outside and surprises the mother, who now understands that her homicide plan has been foiled. Seeing the sun on the porch and panicking, the woman heads for her car, enters the car with her pistol, and puts the pistol up to her head and fires one round, instantly killing herself. Prior to that double homicide and suicide, the mother who had planned this homicidal scheme had made sure that both stepsons had good insurance policies and was telling friends and neighbors, if anything happens to me or happens to our kids, you want to be looking at my husband. That one surviving son spoiled all of her plans and led directly to that suicide following what was almost a double homicide. Darren, take us through that crime scene.
2: Well, Ron, here we are again with another case where a mother killed her children. And so that seems to be the theme of what we're talking about today is mothers killing their children. But this was a different situation. Uh, This wasn't a situation where a mother killed her children to protect them. This is one of those cases where a mother killed her children or attempted to kill both children for greed. Uh, She was done with the marriage. She wanted out of the marriage, but she also uh, wanted everything to kind of go her way. So she ended up shooting both of the children and setting the house on fire. Now the, the fire kind of put itself out, but like you said, when she realized that one of the children had came out of the house, grasping a pillow, trying to breathe through the sucking chest wound, she realized that she could either walk back up to the porch and shot him in the head or the gig was up. So she ended up taking her own life uh, to prevent uh, what would have so obviously come with her going to prison. Uh, Ron, she even had all of the papers and contact information and insurance policies, everything within her vehicle ready to go with her um, as she made her escape. Just that the one boy lived is, why, uh, is, is what spoiled her. But there was a very unique part of this case. Was that the only person surviving with any gunshot residue on their hand was the survivor. Everybody else was clean. That was a unique part of the case.
0: Well, boy, there's so many different levels of things to talk about, including GSR, what's referred to as gunshot residue. But I guess the first challenge is multiple crime scenes. Now, some people would look at it and say, well, no, it's one crime scene. It happened all at the same premise. No. As you indicated before, we've got the residence as a crime scene. We have each bedroom as a crime scene, and we have the vehicle, the woman, and the bodies all as crime scenes, because uh, basically a crime scene is de- is defined as any place where evidence can be obtained,
2: right? That is correct, and in this particular case, not only did we have a one-boy uh, dead inside the home. We had a severely injured boy, and these are adults, 20 20-some-year-old children, but um, on the porch, and then we had a female dead in a vehicle. Now, we had to prove that it was who shot who. At this point, we have the person living that's on the, that's on the porch, but that doesn't mean he didn't shoot himself after he killed his mom and brother. Exactly. We have to go through the case and prove who shot who in this case.
0: Well, for the first child or son that was killed, he was sleeping so he didn't see anything. The second son that was shot was also sleeping, so he didn't see who shot him. And then, like you said, we've got evidence of GSR uh, on the hands of the surviving uh, young man, and we've got a dead woman who happens to be their stepmother in the vehicle. So one of the things that we have to do is we have to make sure that only one weapon was used. And not two weapons, okay? Because I know we found a weapon in in the mother's car, but that doesn't mean that a third party didn't come into that house and shoot both of the kids and then shoot the mother. And the mother maybe had a gun to probably you know try to defend herself. So there's a lot of different scenarios. One of the things about gunshot residue is uh, it's not like you see on television. Uh, A lot of times, gunshot residue can be inconclusive, or it can actually be inaccurate. So. Rather than CSI Miami or Las Vegas uh, on television, uh, you know, gunshot residue isn't a great piece of forensic evidence as far as trace evidence. As a matter of fact, I go back to an FBI study uh, back in 1997 where the FBI looked at uh, the issue of gunshot residue and they found that in their case histories, they actually had known suicide completers that had shot themselves with a handgun with bare hands holding onto the handgun and had no evidence of gunshot residue on them whatsoever. So don't forget, gunshot residue could be found on any person that is at in an area, especially an enclosed area where a firearm has been discharged. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're the person that discharged that firearm.
2: Ron, you're exactly right. And another thing to keep in mind is just because someone has gunshot residue on their hands, they might have been to a firing range per target practicing earlier that day. But then also, if the more expensive rounds you buy, the better the rounds you buy, because while we're testing, of course, is primary residue, the better the rounds, the cleaner the rounds, you might say, the less a chance you'll have gunshot residue on you. So, you know, if you're, if you're shooting a revolver with very cheap, dirty rounds, you know, everybody in the vicinity is going to have smoke, soot, and gunshot residue on them. Uh, in this case, it was a semi-automatic weapon. But, and this has been a number of years ago when, when gunshot residue was still a thing. It's still something we looked at. Now, uh, we really don't look at it unless we have a witness that says, I wasn't even there. I was nowhere around. Uh, I was outside, and I heard a shot. Well, then I want to know, do you have gunshot residue on your hands and clothes? And do you have maybe some um, fine micro blood spatter on you? I can't prove you did the shooting, but I proved you lied to me because you were in close close proximity. So that's the only time it's used anymore for us.
0: Boy, you know, you're you're absolutely right. And, you know, in our first segment, we'd actually talked about the Michael Brown hands up, don't shoot case, which is, again, one of the cases I've analyzed. And one of the big deals, uh, and it was actually a lie, was that... uh, you know, the officer had, uh, pulled out his gun. And, uh, when Michael Brown came up to the car and, uh, Michael Brown hadn't done anything to precipitate that when we actually did find out forensically through trace evidence of, uh, of DNA, not just gunshot residue, but DNA is that, uh, and by the way, uh, the guy that, uh, was uh, with Michael Brown at the time. I think his name was uh, Devon Johnson. Uh, he had said that the, the officer had uh, grabbed and uh, uh, punched Michael Brown from outside the vehicle. So just picture a police officer being inside the vehicle. And by the way, Darren Wilson was a, a pretty big fella himself. Uh, Michael Brown was six uh, four, about uh, 380 pounds, as I recall. And just picture a police officer belted into a patrol car, sitting in an SUV, trying to reach outside of his patrol car and try to grab somebody to come in. Well, actually, what we found out is that Michael Brown uh, punched uh, Officer Wilson two or three times in the face. Then, as Officer Wilson tried to grab his gun, Michael Brown grabbed the officer's gun. And there was literally a fight over the gun inside the vehicle where was around was discharged, actually striking Uh, Michael Brown. We were able to forensically put all this together to show more likely than not the fact pattern. I know I digressed a little bit talking about Michael Brown case. And again, in in my book, I'm going to give it another plug, uh, the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement of the Warren Police on Amazon. I take you point by point by point through all that forensic evidence. In your case, uh, we needed to know whether or not, here's another scenario with respect to the surviving son with the gunshot residue. Did mom come in, shoot that first boy, and then the second boy heard the shot, came in, confronted the mother, they had a struggle over the gun, which would have produced some gunshot residue on his hands, and then over the struggle of the gun, she fires and hits him in the chest, right? I mean, what happened? Look at all the different scenarios that need to be reconciled in a case like that.
2: Right in this particular case, once we got everything answered, of course the first child was shot in the bed, but through the blankets, and it was a through and through shot, and he died there. the The second child who lived was a lot bigger boy. You know, he had a lot more body mass. Um, he would he would be what we would call fat. Okay, he was a big boy, and he was he didn't so he wasn't having blankets and sheets on him. Right, he was hot, so he was sleeping with just nothing but a pair of shorts and a bare a bare top. Well, he had hands kind of he was on his side and kind of had his hands folded there sleeping well the gunshot entered uh, the bullet entered his chest of course so did all that residue go all over his hands because his hands were exposed the first boy his hands were under the covers right the second boy had no blankets or covers so of course his hands got covered with the gunshot residue another way we had to determine you mentioned the suv and this happened to be the mom was in the suv when she shot herself we had to determine whether or not she was alone because we don't, we I'm not, even if the adult child, the living child didn't kill her, someone else might have. And the way we had to determine that was, number one, the bullet was a through and through. And, and we could, it kind of was a back angle. And if someone had been behind her, they most likely would have been struck with the bullet. So we know that wasn't behind her. Then we got the vehicle into a dark place, alternate light source, a whole thing that's hard to explain in radio. But we were able to see that fine mist of blood that, that will, come out of a gunshot, come out of somebody's wound that was 360 degrees in the car with no void. That meant there was nobody the Door wasn't open. The window wasn't down. No one was beside her. So she was in the car by herself. Now she had no gunshot residue. And you say, well, well, how can you not have gunshot residue? She shot herself inside of a car. Yes, but it was a semi-automatic pistol. There was, you know, there, the, the nobody would have had gunshot residue had it not been for the boy, the way the hands were, because her gun, the gun that shot herself was tightly up against her skin. So all the residue would have went inside of her body.
0: Exactly. And boy, what a great description you gave of that. And that is a wonderful way to solve that piece of the puzzle. I wish we were on TV where we could actually do this, but your whole description about the 360 degree, uh, you know, Blood spatter and and the void, right? No void, an absence of a void, which would have meant somebody in the car where no the, the blood spatter would have hurt hit that person, and right there would have been nothing behind it, right? There would right, have been a, right. a void. That that's what Darren's referring to.
2: And some of this uh, uh, spatter that I'm talking about here was. Was like almost microscopic. You know, we we all think a spatter that okay, it's splashed on the wall, and you see all this red blood, and that that spatter, that's great. I'm talking about that fine mist that the listeners may not actually realize happens when whenever whenever a bullet enters a person's body, there's also blood that comes back out in the very the the higher the pressure, the higher the impact, the finer the blood spatter. So of course, a bullet has great impact. Well, you've got this really fine mist that sprays out. Well. That mist is going to coat things. Well, it takes UV lighting, it takes some magnification to be able to see that. That's how we were able to prove the big drops were easy to see. We had to see the fine stuff, and that took that took some uh, a little bit more uh, finesse.
0: Yeah, and you know, well, let's go back to let's go back to that uh, that second boy, uh, the bigger boy, being shot in that bed, and. Uh, you articulated that he had his hands up around his chest and of course he's shot in the chest. So, uh, in our ballistic scientist who's been on this program before Lance Martini's just phenomenal, uh, would tell us that that has a lot to do with distances between the muzzle of the gun and, uh, and the impact of the round. Okay. Because don't forget when those bullets go out, they go out with explosive energy and there's gunpowder, uh, both, uh, gunpowder that's burning up and gunpowder that hasn't yet had an opportunity to fully uh, ignite. And depending on the closeness between the muzzle of the gun and uh, and where the, the gunshot wound is, we could have something referred to as patterning or tattooing. And then don't forget, when that sun puts his hands up to his chest, right? Which is very normal. You get shot in the chest. Oh my God, what happened to me? You put your hands up to your chest. All of that, um, gunshot soot, uh, is doing what? It's transferring from the gunshot wound area onto your hands. Okay. And, and I thought you made a, a very good description talking about how clean the primers are and everything like that. Uh, that it'd be very normal, where the woman wouldn't necessarily get gunshot residue on her hands if she had a pretty clean primer and was using good ammunition.
2: Right, exactly, and that, that was the case in this situation. So uh, we weren't surprised not to find it, but of course that's only one part of the investigation. Uh, we, you know, we had the witness uh, statement, but all he said was, "I just woke up and I was hurting and I couldn't breathe. I didn't know why." He put a pillow on his chest and walked outside. He's the one said he's seen mom go to the vehicle and he's the one said he's seen mom shoot herself. Again, all that is, is just, we, we had to have the evidence and keep in mind um, she had set the house on fire. After she shot both boys. I don't know if I mentioned that, but she set the basement on fire. Now that fire kind of burned itself out, but there was a lot of smoke in that house until it got itself burnt out. So the boy woke up, the house was on fire, his chest was hurting. And all he was trying to do was get out of the house. That's why he grabbed the pillow and was getting out of the house because of the smoke.
0: Wow. And, you know, we talked about proprietary interest and what are the three elements? Something that somebody brings to the crime scene, someone that something takes from the crime scene and the way the crime scene's manipulated. So what does the mother do? She brings a gun to the crime scene. OK, what does she do? She takes paperwork from the crime scene that's proprietary to her. And those kids, in other words, the insurance policies, all of those things. And then what does she do? She sets fire to the crime scene to cover uh, her actions, which is the way that the crime scene is manipulated. Man, you got three for three there.
2: Right, exactly. And this was a tough case, but uh, we were able to prove it in court. Uh, well, we had what's called a coroner's inquest. That's when when you, you want to decide whether or not there's enough evidence to proceed Uh, which direction you want to proceed. And that's another whole show. But in this case, we brought a jury together. We presented all of the evidence, the independent jury, um, and then they ruled that uh, the mother did in fact commit two shootings and then shot herself. Because us as investigators knew that. Us as investigators had the proof. We had the facts. But you can imagine the community outcry here. We had one surviving boy who did what to who Uh, That's why we brought a jury in during a coroner's inquest and and let them decide through the evidence.
0: You know, Darren, that's that's great. You know, I'm not usually involved with coroner's inquests, but I'm very much involved with uh, reviewing uh, grand jury transcripts. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about the coroner's inquest uh, procedure?
2: Sure. And the coroner's inquest is very much like a grand jury. It's it's not a grand jury per se, but it's almost like that. So a lot of states have this law where uh, there is a case like this that needs to be presented. And uh, sometimes you have a suspect, sometimes it's, it's like this, where we're trying to decide. We bring a jury together, uh, the, the the coroner's office, the death investigators, the police, everybody testifies as to what they know about the case. Uh, and then the jury is the one who decides if they believe that a crime has been committed, and who committed the crime? Uh, we use it in our in, in Missouri a lot during um, police shootings. Now, bigger areas would have grand juries do that. Uh, we can use coroner's inquest. It helps the prosecutor to decide if he wants to prosecute or not. Um, it, it's, it's not mandatory, but a lot of times you can, it, 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 courts have what's called a preliminary hearing prior to going to circuit court. Uh, a, a coroner's inquest, a grand jury can bypass the preliminary hearing because it, the evidence has already been heard. So it's really the same, only it's ran by the coroner medical examiner uh, type situation. The only real difference is that an opinion can be given, Ron, where in, 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 in other court cases, other court circumstances, facts only. But other, the other second important difference is a coroner's jury, a jury on the coroner's inquest, can ask questions of the, of the witness. In other cases, jury just has to sit and listen. But in these type of cases, if a juror has a question, they can actually ask the witness a clarifying question. And they can even ask, well, what's your opinion, officer? What do you think happened? And the officer can give his opinion they can weigh in on that and they can use that. That's the two differences. Otherwise, it's really just a big grand jury.
0: Okay. And so the medical examiner or the coroner, or even if the, the county is uh, fortunate enough to have a forensic pathologist like we have on our forensic death investigations team, uh, they establish before the jury the cause and manner of death. Is that Correct.
2: Yes, that's what they're doing. They're actually telling the jury what they believe the cause of manner of death is and how it took place, like meaning who the suspect was if there was a suspect and whether they feel charges to be brought.
0: Darren, why don't you go over for our audience, for our listeners, uh, the basic manners of death, okay, that a coroner or an ME would establish.
2: Right, okay, so a a cause of death is what caused somebody to die. For instance, a a bullet wound uh, to the head would be uh, a cause of death. Right? But then we have to determine what a manner is. So there's five manners. There's homicide, which we know what that is—murder. There's suicide—that's self-murder, self-inflicted. Okay. There's natural—that's where someone dies of natural causes. There's an accident, and then there's the dreaded undetermined. And some uh, coroners, medical examiners, don't like to use that undetermined. But I like that undetermined if you don't know. There's—we don't want to guess at the manner. So here's a quick example. A gentleman gets ran over by a pickup truck and his wife ran over him. Was it a homicide or an accident? It's not natural. It's obviously not suicide. We don't want to determine it yet, but he was ran over by a pickup. The wife was driving. Did she accidentally do it or was it murder? That's how we figure it. And then we have to determine that, and that's the manner. Now, we know the cause. Blunt force trauma to the chest, crushed his chest, crushed his heart. He died of a dissected aorta. We know the cause. Was it, was it an accident or was it homicide? That's what the manner is, and the manner is going to determine who goes to prison, if anybody.
0: And, you know, just like a a grand jury or just like a preliminary hearing, the standard of proof that we use is probable cause. Okay, which is generally defined as specific uh, circumstances, statements, facts and forensic evidence that leads us to believe that a crime has been committed and a particular person committed that crime. So that is our probable cause standard of proof. Darren, when we come back, let's talk about medical examiners and coroners and forensic pathologists and what they do, and then let's talk about the need for training uh, in these areas. You and I both understand that, and, uh, and we'll talk about what you and your company does for a living. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli with death investigator Darren Dake on a thread of evidence
4: on America Outlaw. The silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com for a wide spectrum of programming for world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio.
1: Tired of watching the same old, same old sporting events? Well, kick it up a notch and get ready, America, for something you've never seen before. It's the new generation of Western superstars. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting. The newest, most extreme, premier Western sporting events. Shorty Gorham's American Freestyle Bullfighting pits one freestyle bullfighter against a Spanish fighting bull in a matchup best described as the most dangerous dance on dirt. Who will win? The acrobatic, tough-as-nails Western superstar or the mean, half-ton fighting bulls on earth the future of extreme sports this is not the bullfighting that you remember this is one of the most extreme sports you'll ever see in an arena this is hand to horn combat on a level playing field for more information and schedule of events go to shorty gorham afb.com or find them on facebook that's shorty afb.com or find them on facebook it's bullfighting time
0: back in central Missouri and it's winter time and it's daylight hours and a mother in her twenties. In fact, a new mother has got her three month old infant with her in the living room. And that mother systematically smothers that infant who dies by asphyxiation. Law enforcement personnel get a call from the emergency room about a dead infant, respond to the hospital, and begin their death investigation. With me is death investigator Darren Dake. Darren, take us through that crime.
2: Well, Ron, this was really another one of those heartbreaking situations because it was a a baby involved. And... Through our investigation, we realized that mom had had this child at the hospital three times for difficulty breathing, and that makes a red flag to begin with. Uh, But as we started investigating this, we realized uh, we pulled some medical records and things, and we realized that uh, that we we felt this was probably more of a Munchausen by proxy situation, where the mother was smothering the child to get attention. Uh, And and the short of it is, our investigation showed that she had actually done that. Um, And in this particular case, in the the end, she had smothered the baby with a blanket, um, basically just to make the baby stop crying, uh, and then put the baby into a swing and went and took a shower. Now, the interesting part about this case is that this baby was on one of those apnea monitors that monitors its breathing and heart rate and would go off if it stopped breathing because it had two incidents before. Well, knowing that we needed to seize this piece of equipment because it doesn't belong to the parents. It belongs to the company that's renting it to them. We seized that and we were able to see that when mom turned it on, it sounded for, for 15 or 16 minutes while she took a shower. When she got out, it was still sounding. She turned it off and called 911. So that baby was dead when she put it in the swing and hooked it up to the monitor. Um, but she was wanting to get attention. Another thing about this is not only did I work the case on the, on the scene side, I also interviewed her. And while I was interviewing her and she was talking about how the baby just quit breathing, she didn't do anything wrong. It was just the baby just stopped breathing and she called 911. She was holding a doll that I gave her so she could show me how she was holding it. And I knew the trick. I had her take me through it. And while she was holding the doll and I could watch her hand on the baby's face, pushing down on the baby's face. as she told me one story her subconscious was acting out the truth, and when I brought that to her attention, she finally broke down and started crying, and she confessed everything. We had enough evidence, but she did confess to killing her baby.
0: Well, you know, that is just a fascinating, albeit tragic, story, but it just points out a, a couple of things, Darren, and I'd like to just compliment you on your uh, just immense level of experience, and a couple of things that you brought up that might be uh A strange term to some of our listeners, and that's Munchausen by proxy. And you knowing what that dynamic was all about was critical in in your investigation and interview process, and, and also securing certain types of evidence, medical evidence that we needed. The second thing is you were using what we refer to as more of a kinesic method of interviewing, which is not only listening to people, but watching what they do behaviorally and using the doll as an important interview prop. Can you talk a little bit about uh, Munchausen by proxy so that our listeners understand what that is?
2: Well, certainly, and it's an old term and it's one of these psychological terms, but the Munchausen by proxy is the munchausen syndrome is hurting yourself or doing something to get attention it's usually medical it's usually something like that but munchausen by proxy means that you're hurting or someone else or doing something to someone else to get attention so if for those of you that don't know what it is i have a child and I lack the attention. So I hurt the child and I keep the child sicker than what they really are. And I give them medication they don't need because then I get to dote on the child and the doctors dote on me and I get to go to the hospital and I'm the center of attention. Even though my child is the one that's sick and hurt, I'm the brave one. I'm the good parent. I'm the one that's suffering over a sick child. And all along, I'm the one hurting the child so that I get the attention. That's Munchausen by proxy. In her case, she was doing the same thing. She was hurting her child so he could be rushed to the hospital and everybody was like, oh, no, that's so terrible. Oh, that's so terrible. The child would survive. She went too far the third time and the child died. But it was all for her attention. It was all so that she could get the attention of people feeling sad for her.
0: And, you know, just think. I mean, you and I have been around the block a few times. We've got the T-shirt, as, as they say. Uh, but there are so many, not only police officers, detectives, but also medical personnel in some cases, especially like sheriff coroners, people like that, that don't have that level of training, but need desperately need that level of training, especially in rural areas. And that's the type of training uh, that you and your company Death Investigations Academy outside of St. Louis, Missouri, provide the people with our professionals. Can, so can you talk a little bit about what you do for a living as a law enforcement and medical trainer in death investigations?
2: Yeah, certainly, Ron. Thank you. And, and we have uh, been teaching death investigators for a long time. Uh, we're one of the largest in the country that teach death investigation because that's all we so focus on is uh, death investigation. And one of the things we do is we take coroners, police officers, medical examiner, investigators, and we systematically walk them through how to investigate cases. Uh, sometimes we just talk about specific cases like child death or suicide. But then there's also the certification programs, the level ones. We've got a 40-hour academy, both online and classroom. We're teaching them how to do a better job. Because, Ron, like you said, death investigation in rural areas, and, and not even just in rural areas, but sometimes it's hard to come by Police officers got a lot of training, defensive driving, handcuffing procedures. There's a lot of training for police, but death investigation specific is limited. Also, it, 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 goes, it it's sad to say, but death investigation, coroners, medical examiners sometimes are the last funded. There are states in this country right now that need five or six more pathologists and they only have one. It's underfunded. It, 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 it's it's We don't want to talk about the dead people, so we don't want to fund it, basically is the attitude. Now, these people aren't getting trained. Our academy fills that gap, and we're one of the first ones that came up with death investigation online, that's nationally approved training where an investigator can take our online courses and uh, better their job and get certified. But one other thing, Ron, we also tailor to those people who say, I think I would like to be a deaf investigator. How do I get experience? How do I get some training? We have programs for them so that they can learn how to do the job and then go apply. That way they can say, look, I've had some training. I'd like to apply. So we have programs open for them as well.
0: Well, that's, that's just fantastic, and that's exactly what is desperately needed. You and I both belong to the International Association of Coroners and Medical Examiners. Uh, we are always talking about the need for training, contemporary training, and uh, I'm so glad to have you on the show today so you could talk a little bit about the services that you provide. Can you give our listeners a URL, a website address so that they can get a hold of you if they have an interest in death
2: investigations? Sure. It's real easy. It's deathinvestigation.training. No .com there. Deathinvestigation.training. We also have a podcast called Coroner Talk. We talk all about the life of a death investigator, how to investigate scenes, things like that. And that can be found anywhere you find a podcast. It's called Coroner Talk. But deathinvestigation.training takes you to our academy site.
0: And, you know, thank you so much for being on the show. And, you know, don't forget listeners, Okay. You don't have to see CSI on TV, you can be CSI. The the forensic community is really opening up wide for new positions. You don't have to be a police officer. You don't have to go into the police authority side of it. Uh, you can go into the forensic side. You can be involved uh, involved in uh, death investigations, coroner work. Uh, you can get uh, you can be taught in trace evidence. There's all these openings now, and I'll tell you why. Because a lot of the agencies can't afford to have police officers doing the CSI work. It's too expensive. But that's why there's just greater openings for civilians. Hey, do yourself a favor and give me an email at drron at americaoutloud.com and i'll personally respond back to you maybe hook you up with darren and his company and i can point you in the right direction for uh, csi related jobs in your future you're listening to dr ron martinelli forensic criminologist and forensic death investigations uh detective darren dake at death investigations academy on a thread of evidence on America Out Loud.